Hello, it's Julie Bindle, and this week I'm speaking with Victoria Smith. She is the author of the newly published Hags, The Demonisation of Middle-Aged Women. And Victoria is a writer with an interest in motherhood, intersections of misogyny and ageism. She writes very passionately about topics that I have a great and long-vested interest in, such as the abuse of women and girls in the global sex industry and, of course, the surrogacy trade. She is also a columnist for The Critic magazine, so you can read her work online at The Critic. Here's Victoria. Victoria, thank you so much for talking to me. It's a real pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. And I've been reading you for a number of years, as you know, and uh, I'm just such a, a big admirer of your work and what you do. So well done. Congratulations on the book and how it's been received. It's been wonderful. It must make you feel like you're floating on air. It's been really lovely because obviously I've, it's been, I've been waiting for a while to be, for it to be published and imagining, you know, it, it being published and everyone saying, oh, it's just you thinks that and what you're on about. But actually quite a lot of women have said, actually, they feel the same way, which has been... It's been a relief, but also just really nice to hear just that that people identify with it. It's so nice. And what you've actually said is that women beyond a certain age are hated in a very particular, specific way, because we're not suggesting, are we, that women are seen as somehow equal to men and are liberated from patriarchy. Then all of a sudden we hit a particular point and things change. But it, it's actually quite difficult to get women, I think, to read such harsh realities about their lives that you managed. Tell me about how the book came about and when you made a decision to focus your energy on the way that older women, middle-aged women and beyond, are seen in society. I think it was kind of coming together. Well, like the idea for the book, I had it in 2020, which was, um, that was the year I turned 45. And it was also the year when Karen became a really big thing that people were using sort of and using in one respect to call out racism in older white women, but also increasingly using it just to create this character of the entitled middle age, usually white, but not always white woman who just should shut up about everything and should stop complaining about everything. And it struck me as really well, really convenient that this is time of life, which for a long time I'd been hearing women say, you know, you become invisible, people start ignoring you, you get marginalised in a particular way when you're older. But at the same time, everyone's going, oh, they're, t- they're so noisy, they're so entitled, they're so loud. And I was thinking, well, are they? Or is that just because older women just aren't expected to be visible at all? And statistically, you know, you have the fact that they are less visible on screen, they are being edged out of... Um, TV presenting roles, you know, and storylines were not seen as much. And so I had all these thoughts, but at the same time, there was also this very personal sense I was having that a lot of my own thoughts about older women and what I would be like as a middle-aged woman were coming back to bite me, you know, because I'd always kind of known that um, women of my mum's generation were looked down on as kind of... um, trivial housewives whose views didn't matter so much but I'd always thought that won't happen to me because um I've got feminism and feminism is 
I saw it as the movement that would liberate me, that would make me better than my mum. It's a really brutal way of putting it. And that it's a horrible way of thinking, but it's that kind of, I won't be like those women. I won't be... I, I, there was something Mary, um, Marianne Stevenson said when I was talking to her, you know, that this idea that I wouldn't be so stupid as to end up, um, you know, with a decimated pension pot. I wouldn't, you know, I won't end up like falling behind. I, you know, if you're yeah. a straight woman, you think, oh, I'll find a man and we'll share the, we'll share work equally. So I'm not going to fall behind, you know, and you think all these things, but then all these little incremental things happen and suddenly you're there and you're realizing, oh, that's how it works. It's, it's not a decision that you yeah. make funny that isn't it and actually when you mentioned um the Karen issue of course I was stung by that myself in April 2020 by Pink News none other than Pink News and it was a month before they published something that made me decide to sue them but this this article wasn't defamatory in law but it was really very nasty I had tweeted something asking a question as to whether or not any other feminists think that the term Karen is based on misogyny and ageism and class prejudice. And of course, I got absolutely bashed to smithereens on social media. And there were 20 articles in newspapers all over the world, including the Washington Post, saying how terrible it was that this white woman, this white privileged woman, had completely ignored the fact that Karen was used to describe a racist person, which is absolute bullshit. It's used to describe a white woman who can be accused of racism, either because she is or just because it's convenient. And it was a really horrible lesson in just how far this misogyny goes, because, of course, many, many white men were piling in saying white women are the worst. And I think that this was a time when we first started to realise that one of the popular misogynistic narratives was white women are the worst. Worse than white men, worse than anyone. Is that how you saw it when you looked at the particular Karen trope? I think it kind of tied in with... I mean, I felt really uncomfortable writing about the Karen trope in the book. It was the most uncomfortable thing to write about. And a bit of me didn't want to write about it because I'm a white woman and obviously do benefit from white privilege. But at the same time, to me, it tied in with lots of messages. I can remember, as I would put sort of throughout my whole life, about ways of positioning women as privileged. You know, this kind of, you know, when I was growing up, I remember, you know, I grew up in a very middle class background where, you know, it was kind of status thing for women not to work or not to be in paid employment. And then it was kind of like they're really privileged because they do nothing and like they don't have the pressures of men and it's being a woman's life on the easy setting. And then there was an article I quoted from a, from about 20 years ago from the New Statesman talking about how um, under New Labour, middle class woman became this kind of image of privilege in a way that middle class man wasn't and the way... And it kind of, the kind of Karen as a privileged white woman, as again, and it kind of ties in with cis privileged woman, which I find is the most yeah. ridiculous one. You know, you're, <laughs> you're, you're privileged as a woman for being female, just seem. But there are all these ways in which um, 
women are characterized as privileged and it's always a subset of women but it it filters out to all women because it, it's kind of all these tropes about how we're trivial and our complaints don't matter and we should shut up and then it ends up being kind of the women you can hear are the privileged Karens and the women you can't hear well then um can't hear anyone complaining so then it's this perfect kind of it's true that being white and middle class gives someone like me more access to being heard but then it's kind of you end up with this perfect situation where the women who are heard are not worth listening to because they're because they're privileged yeah and also I think from my reading what shifts when from from your youth to middle age and and older I'm 60 now is how you go from being fuckable unfuckable irrelevant and then absolutely hated again and it's quite handy isn't it because it means that that utter hatred of your female form utter hatred of the fact that you are a girl and a woman under patriarchy can continue on you don't even get the opportunity to become a sweet older woman that you just stand up for on a bus which is kind of hard enough but you 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 remain hated by misogynists clearly we're not talking about the entire world of course one of us has to say this at some stage not all men think this about women who get older but it is true isn't it that we go from hypersexualized through to something else that's quite insidious yeah and then it's this kind of um once you stop being you once you stop being objectified in that way it's a bit like what are you even for what are you still doing here talking and it's this kind of um this kind of rage at you because once you're an older woman if you have this system and it's particularly becoming the case the more gender identity takes hold you know that's really reinscribing that association between femaleness and femininity and then as you become older, you start to like conform less and less to this template of femininity because it's a template that's very much associated with with youth. So then it's this complete rage at you for not being a proper woman because you're older. But I think and, and there's also this rage because we serve a society that really depends on the work of older women. So they don't want us to completely disappear, but they want us to kind of not talk on and not be seen and not get in the way of this kind of bright new reinvention of of women that doesn't include us it's true I remember being in a restaurant with a group of friends who were actors they weren't particularly feminist but they were all women and Bob Hoskins came into the restaurant and they all started falling over themselves talking about how sexy how charismatic Bob Hoskins was now I make absolutely no judgment on whether or not heterosexual women would find Bob Hoskins sexy but I did ask a question as to whether or not his female counterpart so his height his weight distribution with allowances for the female body of course um thinning hair and kind of schleppy way of dressing would she be attractive did they think in their eyes and or to men and of course they all fell about laughing they thought it was hilarious 
that I would suggest. And I was asking. Yeah. I wasn't judging Bob Hoskins. I was just noting that he is not conventionally attractive. And one of them actually said, if that if there was a female counterpart to Bob Hoskins, she would be grotesquely ugly. It is is really noticeable. And I think as well, if there was a female counterpart who happened to like be surrounded by younger men, people would find her really, really creepy and predatory and find it really weird. I mean, I mean, in the in the way that, for instance, with um prostitution I think there's a particular judgment of older women who use younger male prostitutes that isn't there for um older men it's that kind of that they're seen as really grotesque it's interesting about about older women and and depending on their positioning in the world and I suppose what their views are of particular issues to do with what we would call exploitation of women's bodies and what they might call just convenience for example I've met uh, quite a few older women by which I mean 40 plus when I've been doing my research on the surrogacy trade which you've written about and these women um, don't either can't have their own biological children because they are older and that's more difficult to get pregnant or they think that they're too tired because they're older and therefore they rent the body of a younger woman. Now, when we hear apologists for surrogacy, we don't hear those older women, in my view, renting a womb, buying a baby, described as grotesque or creepy. It's almost seen as kind of, um, they're behaving so much like men. It's granted a kind of dignity. You know, there it's... Um, you know, it's, it's, I mean, if you look at, if you see the roots of patriarchy as kind of one big thing is this desire to control female reproduction and sort of lay claim to what's inside the body of another, these women are doing that in a way that, you know, women haven't been able to ever before. And I think um, there are people who, um, yeah, I mean, I find it mad that people will kind of, they're the kind of women that if they maybe they employed a cleaner, they'd be called a Karen who exploits um, marginalised workers. But if they rent someone, because they're doing such a male thing, I suppose, if they, if they sort of rent out the womb of someone else, it's interesting. They get yeah. a free pass. But it, I, I think it's so. this whole commoditization of younger women's bodies is just horrible. And And I saw this when I investigated the hair trade before the war in Ukraine in towns and villages across the country there are many young girls that have thick blonde hair that has never been treated it's never been colored it's never been permed it's never seen any chemicals and hair traders hair brokers comb these these areas looking for hard up families and they take the hair of these girls and it's traditional within um more conservative ukrainian dwellings that they grow their hair long and when they marry their hair is cut and they keep the hair so hair is very very significant so these girls are walking around with a stump where their hair was and somebody said to me when i was researching this but you work, work on violence against women and girls. What's this got to do with anything? Why are you venturing out? And I said, no, it's exactly in my view, 
the same. It may not be violence, but it's pure exploitation. And of course, their bodies are being mined for the purposes of rich. In this case, women, mainly women. And these brokers, of course, um, are just seeing them as commodities. And their fathers who signed the deal are seeing their daughters also as commodities. And of course, there's a fine line between selling one body part or one product um, from the female body to another. And I know that there are many older women, so women over the age of 50, 60, maybe their hair is predominantly grey, it's thinning, it's got weaker, it's got more brittle, that avail themselves of this hair. It reaches about 300 to 500 pounds for one strip, a two, two foot, a two meter strip. It's, it's, it's prime merchandise and it's sold in Knightsbridge um, and Marleybone and hair salons around London to wealthy women. And that's such, it, it's such a, a disturbing thing for me. And I think, as we know, that women, collude in our own oppression that's the nature of patriarchy it it's so terrible isn't it that older women collude in the exploitation of young women in order to disguise our age yeah to disguise what we are yeah absolutely I mean, it, it's got me thinking of um it was like snow white like and and the fact that that's such a kind of um a story that's so ubiquitous and ongoing it's just it's just constant this you make use this really high value thing for women and tell them they're not worth anything if they're not young anymore and then they crave it and um but craving it is demonized as well and it's absolutely impossible that it's just um when you put forward the idea for this book to your to your agent or when when she took it to a publisher, what kind of response did you get? I mean, the way I see it now is any feminist book that's coming out, I mean, actual feminism, not faux feminism or pretend feminism, but actual feminism as this book is, that there's often a kickback and a resistance to it. Did you get that at all? Or did they understand that this was a necessary book and there was no kind of barrier to it? I mean, there were... There's more than one publisher interested in it, but um, they tended to be the kind of there's. I think there's a small number of publishers who publish um, the bad women, if you could put it like that, and kind of um, you know, and you know, my publisher Ursula, who's who's amazing, like she um, she published Kathleen Stock as well. So um, you know, so I you know, I didn't have any worries that I wouldn't be allowed to sort of say what I thought. A woman was and write about it in those terms um I think in terms of going to other publishers I, I didn't really I don't know whether like when people reject something it's a euphemism you know some of the feedback was you know I don't think this could extend to a whole book and I you know you don't know whether there's also I also don't like um her position on sex and gender you know you don't know that well you certainly say uh, how it is on the tin I mean your first chapter is ugly hag you've got beastly hag dirty hag of course 
my favorite chapter, Wrong Side of History Hag. So it goes through. I mean, it's an amazing book and I learned so much uh, reading it. And obviously anyone listening, if you haven't read it, please do just buy it and read it. You'll be all the better for it. And don't only read it if you're over 40. Definitely read it before then. Um, Dead Hag. But Wrong Side of History Hag. Okay, so tell me about that chapter. I think I got so tired of hearing the line that um, old, firstly, that any in debates on sex and gender, concerns about female boundaries, concerns about the trans, transgender children and the medicalization of children who are gender nonconforming. So often that was put in a box that said it's only older women who care about that. And it's just this cohort of older women and they're just behind the times and ignorant and they're going to die out. And then they'll be replaced by this new generation. You know, the, the up and coming older women will be completely different and they'll have better ideas and they'll... Um, they'll kind of replace it all. And it struck me as A, very convenient, and B, that's often what's been said about older women anyways. You know, if you think about um, old the older woman as someone who kind of asks questions about child safeguarding, the kind of the kind of thing Sheila Jeffries was writing about as the kind of the spinster, prudish, frigid, woman who's kind of getting the in the way of male sexual entitlement yeah that that isn't someone who's died out it's just someone who um there is always a way in which it seems to me older women have a particular insight into male sexuality into well I mean not all older women think the same but I think your experiences as you get older through caring through your own developing independence can change your perspective and and also through experiencing sexism in a different way maybe not being treated as an object and maybe not being as interested if you're heterosexual in male approval all these things can change your perspective as you're older so it's not necessarily that you have this particular cohort of generation x women who have these like really outdated ideas about um, male sexuality and sex and gender but they're going to die so it's all fine i think um you're always going to have older women who ask questions that men find annoying and that they want to go away and it's also this sense as well that um you know this characterization of women for instance on mum's net as like you know these ignorant little housewives who don't know what they're talking about and you know they're living in the 1950s a lot of them are just really clever articulate really well-informed women who are just being you know it's it's just not true that they're they don't know what their modern thinking is on sex and gender they just don't agree with it yeah and yet the 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 defense of well that's the wrong way to put it the condemnation of the misogynistic bent when criticizing in my view rightly so mary whitehouse who, you know, my friend Samira Ahmed, she's done some amazing research onto Mary Whitehouse. She did a great radio documentary about her. She is maligned and in some respects misunderstood. I think Samira goes a little further than I would in the defense of some of her views, but but I still think it's okay. In fact, it's our duty and imperative to critique the misogyny 
that is aimed towards women like Mary Whitehouse, like Margaret Thatcher, whilst not defending their views and their actions. And yet this seems to be an abhorrence to some men and women who think that you should be able to say of those women, they're just ugly old hags with reprehensible views and that that's okay, that that personalised, vicious condemnation of their looks, of their age, should be accepted because their views are vile. Yeah, I, I, I can remember when Thatcher was sort of edged out. I, you know, I didn't grow up in a family where people had um, left-wing views, but you know, my parents had friends who, who you know, read The Guardian and you know, really hated Thatcher. And I remember being really disturbed by the level of glee in some of the men, you know, this real, real celebratory attitude that that old witch was brought down. And, you know, it, it didn't strike me that it came from great compassion for the miners or anything like, you know, it just seemed opportunistic. In the same way, I think the kind of ranting at Karen, I don't think comes from some great concern for the low paid um, worker in a coffee shop. I think it's, it's having an opportunity to really have a go at that kind of woman and it's kind of like a warning to any woman who may have completely different political views but who is also old not considered attractive you know don't get difficult because otherwise you know we we will be this cruel to you what about lesbians because obviously there is special hatred um set aside for lesbians and I'm not suggesting it's fine for other women at all, but because we're very blatantly saying that we reject men sexually and that we don't wish to um, share our lives with them in an intimate way, we're often dismissed. Well, I mean, either we're kind of porn fodder, uh, which is the most popular search term if you put in lesbian to Google, or we're already over the hill, ugly, old and irrelevant even when we're quite young and it's interesting isn't it that this relates to sexual availability perhaps and a rejection of men how quickly they go from hello darling what are you doing tonight to fuck off you ugly lesbian did you find anything specific about sexuality um and older women when you did your research and your interviews i mean i felt that a lot of the writing about ageism and the intersection of ageism and misogyny is by lesbians or, you know, um, Adrian Rich, I thought, and Audre Lorde. And um, this book that um, it's called Look Me in the Eye that um, Anya Palmer recommended to me. And, that, and, and lots of um, Baba Copper as well written on it. But there, were, there were quite a few and it, it did seem to me that, yeah, there's this, there's this, like, this attitude of what are you even for comes much earlier for lesbians. Because I think, and, and it did make me think maybe for, as a heterosexual woman, you kind of get this shock later on that lesbians have had to deal with their whole lives. You know, it's that this sudden rage from men that you're not um, being the thing they want you to be. Lesbians have always said no to that. And um, and I think it it is 
more extreme. You know, there, there were ways reading some of the lesbian writers that it made me feel a bit kind of bit of an idiot. And it's a kind of like, oh, I should have worked out all this sooner. And I don't, and as a straight woman, you know, I don't think of myself as someone who has spent her life being out to please men. But there is inherently the fact that I'm straight, there is something more compliant about me in their eyes, I think. You know what I mean? I'm I'm not actually saying no in in a, the same way. Yeah, I, I understand what you mean. And also, conversely, or I suppose, you know, along the same kind of path is the hatred towards mothers, towards issues relating to childbirth, breastfeeding and the like, which I think is the bedrock of some of the absolute dislike of any woman on mum's net and you write about this in the plotting hag don't you yeah in how the hell dare these women with their leaking breast milk and their bruised vaginas and their bodies that are no longer perfect for us um with these babies and not only do they have these babies which are supposed to be to render them at least a little bit more passive but they're on bloody mum's net plotting when they're supposed to be at home and incapacitated, more or less. What did you find when you looked into that? I mean, there are so many women that I've talked to and sort of read about and and just women I know in, in day to day life that say that it's having having babies kind of really radicalised them and sort of made them realise that um, so many things they thought were equal are not equal and that um, they're still considered to be inferior to men and and I think as well if you've had a baby sometimes it can come as you're on the one hand you find yourself mar- marginalized but you also can have this sense that your body's just done this absolutely amazing thing so you're not going to take it you're thinking like how dare you when I've just you know I've just created another human and I'm meant to be a lesser person and and then you know there is this kind of narrative you get now in relation to mum's net um you have these women who want to talk about their bodies and what they mean because suddenly the body has become so significant to them because of what it's done, because of how it's changed, because parts of it that were purely seen as in sexual terms are suddenly, you know, you see them in in completely different light. And then at the same time, um, you know, you have these people telling them, oh, but if you define women as like the sex who like gives birth, you just see them as walking wombs. You see yourself as like some walking uterus and you're like, no, actually, but you know, I want to have a voice and this is relevant and it matters. And it matters, I think even, it matters to women who don't have babies as well, because it's a class identity as well, I think. It is. And, you know, I, I've never had uh, children and I absolutely concur with that. I think the way that, that women are in an impossible situation, whether we have babies or whether we don't, whether we're mothers or whether we're not, bonds us together in that way as well. You're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. And obviously both states bring with it freedoms and consequences. Rachel Cook said in her review in The Observer that women would bond together through this book. It would get women talking to each other. And that, to me, is the biggest achievement of feminism. It's what we built the women's liberation movement on. Tell me how you felt when you read that from her. I think that is is really important 
to me. I mean, I think one of my my worries with the book is kind of how it would sound to younger women and whether it would sound patronising, whether it would sound divisive when I don't want it to be divisive. But I've had some really good conversations with younger women about it as well, which has been really gratifying because it, it it is this kind of... Yeah, I mean, there is a kind of autobiographical thread in it as well when I talk about how I used to think about ageing and the body and old women, how I think about it now and how I often think, you know, how, think, how would my younger self have heard the things I'm writing and saying now? Would she just think, oh, shut up, you you've no idea what you're talking you know this this kind of thing and and it's really important to kind kind of find ways to overcome all these ways that are meant to stop us from talking to one another and make us feel divided like that and make us stop seeing what we have in common yes which is obviously something that the anti-feminists can't bear because what they're doing constantly is suggesting to us ways in which we are different yeah. And that's quite a clever, a clever ploy. So, I, you know, your book will obviously um, really hit a nerve with women because younger women, I think, know what's coming to them because they see it all around them. And it's what they strive in many ways, whether they're vain or not, whether they're straight or lesbian. It's what they strive not to be. The pressure on us is immense not to be old, not to become old, not to become less conventionally attractive. What about your next steps? Is there another book in you? Is there something that you're planning as a sequel or are you going to go off on a bit of a different journey for your next big project? Um, I'm sort of thinking I have ideas for another book at the moment that I'm thinking about. It's, it's a bit kind of, I found like this book coming out more full on time-wise than I thought it would be just in terms of, I don't know, I just thought the book would go out there and then I wouldn't have to do anything. <laughs> But, um, you know, and I'm still working and got the kids and things. So that's quite a lot. And I have found as well, um, since I've got a book out, lots of people send me their books now, which is really quite amazing. <laughs> so I've got all these books to read as well. But but um, I think, yeah, I would like to write more about this. I'm thinking particular. I think one one area that I'm thinking about a lot that's in the book and that I want to extend is the whole just be kind stuff, this idea of kindness and how it works with women and how it's used against women at, at all ages and how actually it's this conditioning that takes different forms throughout your whole life. So uh, you know, that's an area that I, I think is really interesting. And really, I, I agree. I think that that is one of the key barriers for women, all of us, how feminist we are, however long we've been feminist, is resisting the temptation to put being liked and being kind above everything else. It's really hard. It's really hard when you say to younger women that you critique the be kind thing, because it sounds like you're saying be mean. And I think it's on the same kind of it's kind of the same issue when you say to women try to stop caring if they like you or not I think that holds us back so much and I think again younger women think we mean just be horrible or don't have any friends and of course we don't mean that do we no and genuine kindness is really it's really really important and you know I don't think um 
you know, when I say like women should have boundaries and women should be able to center their own needs, I don't mean like don't stop caring about other people, particularly because, I, you know, one of the other things I wanted to stress in the book was some people's idea of liberation and freedom comes from this denial of our dependency on other people. And older women can't really get out of that because they're kind of already enmeshed in these dependencies, either with younger children and or with older people. And actually, we have to recognise that and we have to redistribute the care. So it's more e it's more equal and it's more shared. And all these things are really important. But the way in which just be kind is used is often to just to silence women or to make them put then you know deny their own needs completely and it can be really harmful I think well I'm very glad that you wrote this book because all of that you explain extremely clearly and anyone that thinks that feminism stops and starts with women who are 18 years old which I think has happened in recent years it's something that's almost worn as a label, it's adopted as a, a lifestyle choice. We really need to look at the role that women of all generations play in the movement because there's so much experience out there. And we learn from young women all the time, don't we? And that's what I think is misunderstood. It's as though those of us who are over the age of 40 stop listening, stop learning, and that we think we know it all. That's absolutely not true. And I think we're very much aware that younger women are in a very you know there, there are things we have in common but they're they're in a very different environment yeah. to the one that we grew up in one and it's I think it's a much harder one from just just particularly because of online pornography and social media are creating particular stresses and narratives about what women are that um, just weren't there to the same extent I don't think when I was that age. I think things are much harder for younger women than they were when, when I was young. But let's keep the focus on us old hags. Some of us are older than others. And I couldn't be more proud to be a hag. Victoria, thank you so much for talking to me about this. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening. I love feminism. And I love those feminists, like Victoria Smith, who says it exactly as it is. As I said in the introduction to this podcast, please read Hags, read Victoria's work, get involved in feminism. Somehow, in any way, we need you. Until next time. <laughs>